If you have or have ever had small children, I can use the word chaos, and you say, yeah, I I understand that. That's my life. But what's the Bible's picture of chaos? What's the Bible's picture of of total, upside-down, no order, no conception of anything happening for a reason or a purpose, of other chaos? What's the Bible's picture of an entire society, in fact, that is supposedly filled with God-fearers who are living as they please according to their own standards. What's the Bible's picture of this? Well, this is the picture given in the book of Judges of the nation of Israel. Judges 21-25, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's chaos. You had no authority, therefore you had no submission. You had no submission to authority, and because of this, you had in Israel's history one of the darkest and most vile periods in their their entire existence. Submission is vital to God's people. It it is part of what it means to be a God-fearer. And in our text this morning, which is John chapter 13, verses 36 through 38, in John 13, 36 through 38, We're continuing to look at the farewell address of Jesus Christ to his disciples. And we've been putting together, kind of constructing the picture, the the theology of a triumphant Christian life. What that looks like, a, a life which is characterized by fullness of joy, by spiritual peace, by spiritual victory, characterized by a a yearning to obey the Lord, to walk with Christ in a way that's vital and alive and maturing and growing and deepening. And now it's getting exciting because we're starting to see this picture in fuller detail. So far, we have seen that a triumphant Christian life is a confession-filled life, a humility-filled life, a gratitude-filled life, and a church-filled life as we've been walking through John chapter 13. And today, I'd like to submit to you that the triumphant Christian life is a submission-filled life. It's a submission-filled life. In so many circumstances, the defeated Christian life at times can be traced back to a straining, a striving against authority, an unwillingness to submit to that which God has ordained as authoritative. And ultimately, a pervasive pattern of straining against authority is an indication of having never been born again, of being a false believer. Romans 8, verse 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Uh, The main word in the New Testament, submit, it's the Greek word hupotasso, and I'm only bringing that up because I'll mention it again later, but it's used 38 times. And it means to place yourself under, to be underneath, to obey, to be subject to. Most of the time, hupotasso is translated as submit. About eight times it's translated as be subject to someone, as in a ruler or a leader. And my hope this morning, through John 13, and then we're going to make our way out for, outward from John 13, my hope is to make the case with devastating evidence that submission, listen carefully, submission is not just part of the Christian life. Submission is the Christian life. That's what the Christian life exists in. That's the realm that we exist in. So I want to give you three lines of evidence to make this case, and I believe each line will get stronger. That's my hope, at least. I want to show you the necessity 
of a Christian, of a submission-filled life. I want to show you the settings of a submission-filled life and the qualities of a submission-filled life. And we'll sort of ramp this up as we go. The necessity, the settings, and the quality qualities of a submission-filled life. So first, let's look at the necessity of a submission-filled life. And now we rejoin the Lord Jesus in the upper room as he's teaching his disciples. These are his final instructions before his arrest and crucifixion that will be just hours from this moment. Jesus has just exhorted the disciples to love one another. This is going to be important because he's leaving them for a time. He's going to die. He'll be raised and he'll ascend into heaven and they will have to carry on the ministry of the gospel themselves. They will be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so, but it will now be their responsibility. John 13, verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter's concerned. He doesn't want the Lord to leave, so he tries to find out where Jesus is going. He still doesn't fully understand Chapter 14, Jesus will make it abundantly clear, but for the moment, he doesn't fully get it. And so Jesus tells Peter, you can't follow me now. You can't go where I'm going, but you will follow me later. And by implication, him and the rest of the disciples will follow Jesus. By the way, this affirms the doctrine of the assurance of salvation, that Jesus has just assured them that at the end of their life, they will go where he has gone. Where is he going? He's going to heaven. And so he assures them of their salvation. And now Peter asks a question and then makes a promise. Verse 37, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. There's his question and his promise. Verse 38, Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, when Peter asked his question, Lord, why can I not follow you now? We shouldn't imply any sort of rebellion. We shouldn't see any sort of pushing back on on Peter's part. He's just like a little kid who doesn't want to get left behind. He doesn't want to be the one staying behind. He loves Christ. He loves Jesus. He wants to be wherever Jesus is. That's always his goal. And so Peter makes a promise. Maybe this will make Jesus have me be with him all the time. He says, I will lay down my life for you. That's kind of a nice way of saying, uh, I'm a good guy to have around. I'll lay down my life for you. But then Jesus asks this surgical question, will you lay down your life for me? And then Jesus predicts that Peter will deny Christ three times that very night. By the way, the other gospels give a more detailed account of the extent to which Peter went to convince Jesus of just how loyal he was of how submissive he was. Matthew 26, 33, Peter answered, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. That's a polite way of saying, hey, these other guys, even if they turn out to be bozos, I'll be with you all the, all the way. Mark 14, 31, Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples were saying the same. They're like, oh, well, I'm not gonna let Peter get in on that. That's, I'm there too. Luke twenty two thirty three, Peter said, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And so he, he protested. When Jesus said, will you lay down your life for me? Peter was emphatic when he said, yes, I will. 
But within hours, Peter would deny knowing Christ three times later that night. But the love of Christ wouldn't let Peter slip out of his hand. Jesus would forgive and restore Peter as recorded in John 21. And Peter would ultimately be filled with the Holy Spirit. He would become the primary shepherd of the early church and he would preach the gospel fearlessly. And here's the irony. Jesus asked Peter, will you lay down your life for me? But the irony is is that it is Jesus who would lay down his life for Peter and for all who would come to Christ by faith for the forgiveness of sins. But in that question that Jesus asked, will you lay down your life for me? In that question, we hear the overtones of the declaration that Jesus has previously made of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Christ. Listen to see if this doesn't sound familiar. Mark 8, 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What is that saying? Lay down your life for me. Luke chapter 18. The rich young ruler said, I want eternal life. I want to follow Christ. So Jesus said, command number one, sell everything you own. And the rich young ruler refused. He would not submit. Not even to the first thing that Jesus told him to do. So if you say you want to follow Christ, then the proof is in your conduct. It's not that you earn your salvation with your conduct. That's impossible. But you demonstrate salvation with your conduct. Because submission is not part of the Christian life. Submission is the Christian life. It absolutely is. That's the necessity of the submission-filled life. I'd like to give you a second line of evidence that submission is the Christian life. I'd like to talk to you about the settings of the submission-filled life. What does it mean to lay down your life? What does that look like? And we want to move beyond John 13 and to demonstrate the, the overwhelmingly vital element of submission. I want to walk through just a brief survey of what the New Testament epistles tell us about submission. I'm going to be reading a series of texts to you to show you the, the saturation that we see in the New Testament on this topic. And so we'll just do a, a quick flyover of the New Testament. There's too many references to turn to all of them. So to kind of help divide our thoughts here, you might, if you're making notes, you might note the references because there will be a lot. But let's divide the settings of submission into three realms. Three realms. There's submission in the world. There's submission in the church. And there's submission in the home. There's submission in the world, submission in the church, and submission in the home. And I would say that that's fairly comprehensive because you are always in one of those three environments. Every moment of your life. You're always in one of those three contexts. These are the realms in which we lay down our lives for Christ. So let's, let's think about submission in the world. Submission in the world. Under that category, Christians submit to the government. We submit to the government. The classic text that we have on this is Romans 13, beginning in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid." 
For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So Paul explains that human government has been instituted by God. Genesis chapter nine, by the way, has been instituted by God to provide some sort of defense against total anarchy to bear the sword toward the evildoer. Generally speaking, the government lays low when it comes to the person who obeys the law, and generally speaking, they punish the evildoer. That's not perfect, but it's better than nothing. The key here is verse 1, that authorities that exist have been instituted by God. And so the next time you're tempted to say denigrating things about those authorities that you di- with whom you disagree, stop and be careful. Because they were placed there by God for a reason. Paul tells Titus in his instruction to the churches of Crete, he says in Titus 3, 1, remind them to be submissive. There's hupotasso again. Submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient. The Apostle Paul, Apostle Peter rather, tells the persecuted church, those who are undergoing persecution from the government, be subject for the Lord's sake. This is 1 Peter 2.13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. As a matter of fact, according to the Apostle Paul, we're to pray for our leaders. 1 Timothy 2 says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We're to pray for our officials, and that goes hand in hand with living a peaceful life, a quiet life, a godly life, and a dignified life. Those two go together. And so we submit to the government as part of living in the world. Slaves submit to masters. Slaves submit to masters. Now, slavery in the first century is very different than our conception of slavery. It's a different topic for a different day. But slave is a good general term, and we can't get away from it. It's used 125 times in the New Testament. It's a good general term for us to be reminded that God ordains that if you are under some sort of human authority, then you submit in that position as unto the Lord. The most detail of this relationship is given in Colossians 3, beginning in verse 22, bondservants, same word as slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. The Apostle Paul gives some of the practical outworkings of a submissive underling. Titus 2, verse 9, bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be, and here's the outworking, well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Peter even specifies which type of master we're to submit to. 1 Peter 2.18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Is there such a thing as an obedient Christian going on strike? No, there's not. Paul gets to the heart of the matter of submission 
to earthly masters, how we're to approach submission in our hearts first. Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 5, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. And so slaves submit to masters, employees submit to employers, and so forth. Conversely, masters submit to the Lord. Masters are to submit to the Lord. Paul continues in Ephesians 6. In verse 9, he says, Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. In other words, to to take it back to the slave, to the employee, if you're being mistreated, all you have to do is wait because God is going after the guy who's mistreating you. That's all you have to do. And Paul warns the masters, don't abuse your power by threatening because it will come back to bite you. He reminds them that in the records of heaven, The Christian slave and the Christian master are equal. We just fulfill different roles on earth at this moment. Both are on equal footing. Paul appeals to the hearts of the masters as well. In Colossians 4 verse 1, he says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Be just, be fair. The professing Christian who's constantly enraged and up in arms about the authorities that are all around us, that's not living the spirit of a dignified, godly, peaceful, and quiet life. And so there's submission in the world. That's the, that's the realm we live in. It's the realm that's probably the most difficult. But there's another realm of submission in the New Testament. That is submission in the church. Submission in the church. And so we have different relationships in that realm. Sheep are to submit to the shepherds. The members to the, to the leadership. Church members submit to qualified church leadership. Hebrews 13 verse 7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Those who speak to you the word of God are to be remembered. It means to be kept in your mind, to be recalled. In other words, you're not to brush them off as inconsequential. There is to be an indebtedness to those who teach you if your heart is right in this regard. There is a a debt that's owed. I I can think of men who have spoken into my life and I can think of specific sermons that I've heard that to this day will bring tears to my eyes because it changed me. It helped me understand God. It helped me worship God. And I owe them a debt. I remember them. And just 10 verses later in Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Something. Submission to leadership is not just for your sake, it's for their sake as well. We've talked about this before. This is a a team effort here. It's an act of love. But not only do sheep submit to the shepherds, if we stop there, it would be unbalanced. Shepherds submit to the chief shepherd. Shepherds submit to the chief shepherd. Shepherds don't get to have some sort of autocratic 
uh, dictatorial rule with no boundaries or no limits. That's not biblical. That's not right. The Apostle Peter gives a sharp and appointed exhortation to the leaders of the church. And he, by the way, even throws his weight around a little bit with his qualification as an apostolic leader. 1 Peter 5, he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, meaning I was there, you weren't, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And here it is. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In two different very important texts, the Apostle Paul reminds the church leaders who the real leader is. Ephesians 1, and 23 says that God has, quote, put all things under his feet, that's Christ's feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. And just so he's abundantly clear, Colossians 1, and he, that is Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. It's his, it's his, it's his. Church does not belong to the pastor. The church does not belong to the elders. We are merely stewards. We are slaves of Christ along with you, charged with leadership. So sheep submit to the shepherds. Shepherds submit to the chief shepherd. There's one more relationship. The sheep submit to the sheep. The sheep submit to the sheep. Paul said in Ephesians 5.21 that we are to be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This doesn't mean that we attempt to exercise spontaneous authority over one another. I want you to submit to me. Oh, yeah, I want you to submit to me. Oh, yeah, I want you to submit to me. That's not what we're talking about. It speaks of an internal attitude of preferring others. We get more clarity even in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Right after giving the exhortation to the elders to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, First Peter 5, verse 5, Peter says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. One of the heroes of the faith that we love here, Charles Spurgeon, nicknamed the Prince of Preachers, that great 19th century preacher in England, he said this, He that is willing to be a doormat on which the saints may wipe their feet is great in the kingdom of heaven. That's what it is to submit to one another. So we submit in the world, we submit in the church. The final realm in which we are to be submissive, submission in the home. Submission in the home. First of all, husbands submit to Christ. Husbands submit to Christ. The Apostle Paul lays out the order of things while giving us a clear example to follow. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Did you notice the accountability of the husband? The head of every man is Christ. That is not an empty threat. That means that every man is accountable to the Lord Jesus 
And under Christ's rule, husbands are given a specific command. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for. Love is an active imperative. It means this is a command that the subject, the husband, is responsible toward the object, the wife. And he's responsible to love her. And he is to love her as Christ loved the church. Not to the same degree that Christ loved the church. That's impossible. We're not able to do that. But in the same manner that Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? Well, he goes on to say, and gave himself up for her. This speaks of sacrificial love. Of loving in a way that costs you. That, that means something. That's how Christ loved the church. By gave, giving himself up for her. Later in Ephesians 5, Paul appeals to something that men are already doing, watching out for themselves. And this is genius. He says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And anybody who was saying, I'm not sure if I should love my wife. Oh, he got me on that one because I already love myself. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. And because we are members of his body, and he quotes there all the way back from Genesis 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In other words, if you don't want to love your wife, you're not loving yourself because you're one. You're a unit. He says in verse 33, Let each of you love his wife as himself. In the shorter version, Paul exhorts the Colossian men, Colossians 3.19, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And so husbands submit to Christ at the risk of Christ's discipline. And you, you might say, well, there's nobody here to, to enforce that. Well, I would say that's wrong on two counts. First of all, your church leadership is here to enforce that. Ladies, if you have a man who is domineering and unloving and doesn't care, let us know. Because we'll go knock on your door and talk to him. But secondly, 1 Peter 3, 7 says, basically, and this is my paraphrase, husbands, if you're not living with your wives in an understanding manner, uh, good luck getting your prayers answered because we're done. Until you start, your prayers may be hindered. And then on the flip side, wives submit to husbands. Wives submit to husbands. Again, the created order in God's economy is expressed in 1 Corinthians eleven three. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Paul is even clearer with more detail in Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands, even as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. In Titus 2, verse 5 Paul says that wives are to be, quote, submissive to their own husbands. Christianity in the Bible never teaches that women are submissive to men in general. That is not the case. It is a wife is, is to submit to her own husband, that the word of God may not be reviled. Did you catch that reason? That the word of God may not be reviled? What does that mean? The word of God says, that you, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. That you're different, you're changed, you're brand new, you're not the same. You're not the, the, the woman who is under the curse given to Eve that you shall desire to dominate your husband. That you're not that person anymore. 
That's what the Bible says if you're a Christian. But if a woman won't submit to her husband, that says the Bible is untrustworthy. And then when it says that a Christian is a changed person, it doesn't really mean it. And so it reviles the word of God. In fact, 1 Corinthians 11 speaks of the submission of a wife for the sake of the angels. Because the angels are the most submissive creatures in the universe. And it's a bad witness and testimony to them. The Apostle Peter gives his encouraging and his clear, lengthy admonition to the Christian woman, including the Christian woman married to the unbelieving husband, by the way. 1 Peter 3, beginning in verse 1, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, and we might add merely external is what he means, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Do you see what submission looks like? One without a word, respectful, pure in conduct, gentle, quiet in spirit. That's what submission looks like. Paul explains that submission is a Christian thing to do. He says in Colossians 3.18, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. That if you're in the Lord, that's what you do. The end of Ephesians 5, Paul caps off his extensive commands to husbands with a final reminder to wives in verse 33, respect her husband. She's to respect her husband. What does that mean? It refers to how you speak, refers to how you behave, it refers to how you defer. Still in the home, the realm of the home, children are to submit to parents. Children are to submit to parents. This is a parent's favorite verse. Ephesians 6.1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. We, we paint that on our, the walls of our kids' room in one foot, one foot high leathers, right? When the child is born, let's, let's go ahead and put Ephesians 6.1 up there just to get that foundation laid. Why would the child care about what's right? I mean, by definition, kids don't care about what's right. Well, because this is specific to a child who is in the Lord. That is always used in Paul's writing to speak of the regenerate, the born again. Is it possible for a little kid to be born again? Apparently, because Paul says to the little born again kids, obey your parents in the Lord. Similarly, Colossians 3.20, children obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. I've had in this church little bitty kids, four, five, six, seven years old, say, I want to do something great for Jesus. What can I do? Well, you know what Paul's answer is? Little one, it pleases the Lord. It is great to obey your parents. So you want to do something great for Jesus? Next time mom says, clean your room, say yes, ma'am, and do it. That's what's great. But parents are not the dictators of the house with no accountability. When you have that first little one born, you don't look at them and say, my kingdom is now here and the king will rule. Parents submit as well. There is a heavenly father who is watching. 
Paul further commands parents in Ephesians 6.4, fathers, that's a Greek word which can be used for parents. Parents, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. You don't get to frustrate your children. You don't get to terrify your children just because you're bigger than they are. You don't get to abuse your kids because you have all the power and they have none. There are limits to how parents may exercise their authority. And how are they to do this? First, they are to discipline. That's to provide limits, to provide boundaries, provide consequences. Proverbs says to apply the rod, that is loving physical punishment, to the rebellious child. They're to instruct them in the things of God as revealed in Scripture. As parents, you don't get to just make up a moral compass and direction that you're pointing your children toward. You already have marching orders. Your children are to be loved. They're not to be frustrated. They're to be disciplined, and they're to be taught the things of the Lord. You don't get to decide how to be a parent. You've already been told. And woe to the parent who ignores that because Jesus Christ will come quickly to the aid of a child. Do you see that submission happens in every realm of life? There's no place that submission is not an issue. We submit in the world, we submit in the church, we submit in the home. Now, when the topic of submission comes up, we tend to default to wives submit to your husbands. That's not fair and that's not intellectually honest. Submission floods the Christian life at every single level. And submission at these levels is very much, I believe, with all of my heart, the test of authenticity of your faith. You might resist the idea because you've been sucked into the culture. You might resist the idea of wives submit to your husbands. But if you're going to be intellectually honest and you're going to be mentally consistent and spiritually honest, then you must resist every area of submission in life if you're going to be honest. If you say, I believe that the idea of a wife submitting to her husband is a cultural idea relevant only in the first century, then you must also say that every other area of submission is a cultural issue that no longer applies. And what do you have then? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And really, even Christ's description of coming to faith in him is an act of submission by metaphorically putting an instrument of submission around your neck. Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. The yoke, of course, speaking of the collar worn by oxen, which would pull a plow in the agricultural metaphor that Jesus uses. There's nothing controversial about submission. When somebody says submission is a controversial topic, I would totally disagree with that. Because it's really easy. Christians submit and unbelievers don't. It's that simple. There's a third line of evidence that submission is the Christian life. The qualities of a submission-filled life. The qualities of a submission-filled life. There are stunningly consistent similarities with every realm of submission. I want to briefly show you four qualities of a submission-filled life. And all we're going to do is circle back to all of these passages and show you that submission is the same in every realm. Four qualities. Here's the first one. Submission is theological. It's theological. Now, when we say theological, technically that means the study of God, the study of the things of God. But it can also speak of motivation. In this case, a God-centered, a God-glorifying motivation. I have a theological, a God-focused motive. 
So let's see how theological, how God-centered our motivation for submission is to be. Romans 13. There is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Why? Because God has appointed the government. The government, later on in that passage, twice is called God's servant. God's servant. 1 Peter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Colossians 3, slaves are to obey their masters, quote, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. How many more ways can Paul say it? Titus 2, slaves are to be submissive, quote, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. What does it mean to adorn the doctrine of God? That the truth of the gospel is decorated by your submissive behavior. That those around you say, man, that guy, that gal, never gives me any problems, always does everything I say. Why is that? Well, because she's a Christian. It adorns our doctrine. Ephesians 6, slaves are to obey their masters, quote, as you would Christ, as bondservants of Christ. Well, I don't like being a slave. Really? Well, you're a slave of Christ if you're a Christian. As to the Lord and not to man, because whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. And conversely, masters are to be kind to those under them. Ephesians 6, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, that you are not without accountability. Well, I own my own business. I can do whatever I want. Not according to this. There will be a day which you stand before the Lord and the Lord calls you to account to say, yes, I saved you, but you treated your employees like trash. You will receive no reward for that realm of your life. Colossians 4, you have a master in heaven. The sheep in the church are to submit to the shepherds because they speak to you the word of God. Hebrews 13, 7. Shepherds are giving an account to God, Hebrews 13, 17, concerning you. How will your shepherds report to the Lord concerning you? Shepherds submit to Christ, 1 Peter 5, because the church is the flock of God. It is not appropriate for a pastor to say, I love my flock. I don't have a flock. You're God's flock. As God would have you. Because the chief shepherd is watching. Leaders are reminded in Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1 that Christ is the head of the church. This is his body. It's his church. If you, we took time to go to Revelation 2 and, and 3, you see the letters of the Lord Jesus himself to his churches in Asia Minor. And he claims ownership. And you know who he's holding accountable? He says, to the angel of the church at Ephesus. That's just a word that can mean a messenger. It can be an angelic messenger or it can be a human messenger. In this case, it is a human leader or the group of human leaders because Jesus is never seen to tell angels to repent, but he tells some of these leaders to repent because he's the head. The sheep are to submit to the sheep. Ephesians 5.21, why? Out of reverence for Christ. 1 Peter 5, we are to be humble toward one another. Why? Because God opposes the proud. Husbands are to love their wives. Why? 1 Corinthians 11, 
The head of the husband is Christ. Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church. We are members of his body. A husband's prayers may be, go unanswered if he refuses. That's a God-centered motivation. Conversely, wives are to submit to their husbands. Ephesians 5, as unto the Lord. Titus 2, that the word of God may not be reviled. Yeah, my husband might not be a perfect man, but I'm going to submit to him because I don't want to besmirch God's word and besmirch the gospel. 1 Peter 3, the goal of submission may be to win a husband to God. And this submission is your adornment. It's your decoration. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. It is popular today that as soon as you become a Christian to go get a commemorative tattoo. That's fine if you want to do that. You know what the Bible says? The commemorative tattoo of your salvation is, is to be submissive to authority. And this submission, Colossians 3, is as is fitting in the Lord. How are children to obey? In the Lord. Ephesians 6, Colossians 3, for this pleases the Lord. Parents are to bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Submission is deeply theological. It is deeply God-centered. It is deeply pointed toward heaven. There's a second quality of submission. It is unconditional. Not only is it theological, it's unconditional. There are no exceptions. You're not the special one who doesn't have to submit the way others do. Now, there is one exception. No one in authority has the right to ask you to sin in the name of submission. At that point, you do draw a line. But that's the only exception. There are no other special circumstances. Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Titus 3, remind them, meaning every church member, to be submissive. Church members are to obey their leaders and, quote, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you, plural, pronoun, you, all of you. Shepherds are responsible to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Among you is defined by those who join the church, those who identify themselves as believers by officially joining with the body of Christ. Shepherds are not ultimately responsible for those who won't do that. But we don't get to choose which, shepherds, uh, which members we want to shepherd and which ones we would rather not. And when we have a lineup of up here or down here of, of new members, the elders aren't in the back going, all right, I'll take one and two, you take three and four. Number five looks a little suspicious, so we're not going to go with him. If you look a little suspicious, you don't become a member in the first place. No, we shepherd the flock of God that is among us. We don't get to choose. Concerning how we treat each other, the Apostle Paul did not say, in humility, count some others as more significant than yourselves. He just says, count others, meaning all others. Peter said in 1 Peter 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Once in a while, hasn't happened in a while, but once in a while, we'll get a, a, a church attender or a member, and after talking to him for a year or two, you really get to understand that he thinks he's special. He's above. He's different. He's not going to serve because he has greater understanding than you. He's not going to be under leadership because he has greater understanding. Well, I've read this book. Well, I've been to this seminar. I've done this. What is that? That's an unbeliever. Because believers are submissive. 
in all of Paul's and Peter's admonitions to husbands to love their wives, there are no exceptional circumstances in which that duty is waived. No man gets to say, man, have you been around my wife? Have you seen how she acts? Have you seen what she says? What would Paul say? He would say, be a man. Paul says in Ephesians 5.33, let each of you love his wife as himself. You're not special. You're, you're not unique. Regarding wives, 1 Corinthians 11 says that the head of a wife is her husband. There are no exceptions to that. Children are to obey parents for this is right. No conditions. It's just right. Submission is unconditional. And by the way, it does not depend on the perfection of the object of submission. We submit to Christ who is perfect and we are to submit to human authority which is not perfect. The Apostle Peter illustrated how Sarah submitted to Abraham, which I think has broader implications for the the heart attitude of submission all the way across the board. He said in 1 Peter 3, verse 6, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And if you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything, that is frightening. She called him Lord. She did not fear. Why? Because God will call to account ungodly leadership. You don't have to do that. He will. Calling him Lord, this is a way of expressing that her submission was unconditional. She didn't fight back. Submission is theological. It's unconditional. It's the third quality of submission. It's total. It's total. 1 Timothy 2, we are to submit and to pray for all who are in high positions, not just the ones I voted for. Now, obviously, you can't possibly pray by name for every person in authority. So when it says all who are in high position, it doesn't mean that you're in sin if you uh, forgot the county clerk and can't remember his name. It simply means there's no one that you should refuse to submit to and no one you should refuse to pray for. Colossians 3, bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. You don't get to make that choice. It's everything. Titus 2, 9 and 10, bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. In the church, the sheep are to obey your leaders and submit to them, period. No exceptions given. Shepherds are to remember that Christ is the head over all things to the church. Ephesians 1, leaders don't get to just operate on the opinion that if they disagree with something from Scripture, that we'll just do things differently. No, I think that given our our progressive society now, we should go ahead and allow women pastors. I'm sorry, the Bible doesn't allow for that. I didn't make that rule, God did. Christ is the head of the church. Colossians 1 says that Christ is preeminent in everything. I don't get to do that which is not ordained in Scripture. In our sheep-to-sheep relationships, we are to, Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. It's total. Husbands are to love their wives at the same level that Christ loves, uh, at the same level rather that he loves himself. This is how the Apostle Paul puts it. He is to hold fast to his wife. They're one flesh. They're a unit. This is total. This isn't two people trying to get along. This is one person. And wives, Ephesians 5.24, should submit in everything to their husbands. Not some things. Not the things I, I agree with. And children, obey your parents in everything. This is clear. There's no lack of clarity here. There is no occasion to say no. 
There's no occasion to refuse to do something unless you're asked to do something that positively is defined by Scripture as sin. There, there is no, no, I'm not going to do that. You see the total nature of submission? Submission is theological. It's unconditional. It's total. Now, I will say this. It's possible to fake the first three. It is not possible to fake the last quality. Submission is internal. It is internal. There's a genuineness to godly submission. Romans 13.5, concerning submission to authority. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. That's internal. Titus 3.1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to obey. The Greek word for obey or obedient is a word that it goes alongside submit very often, but it means to be convinced in your mind to trust. In other words, you've made a decision internally. It's an internal attitude. 1 Timothy 2 commands us that we offer supplications, prayers, intercession, and thanksgivings for all kings and all who are in high position, that you have a thankful attitude for all the authorities that God has given. You may disagree vehemently. They may make your ears turn red when they do just silly things. But you know what you have when you have an empty government? You have everybody uh, hiding behind guns and trying to survive because now you have anarchy. And so we may have an imperfect authority, but it is the one God has instituted and we are to be thankful for them. It means that when you come across a a law enforcement officer, you are to treat that person with respect and with kindness. Slaves are to obey. Colossians 3, quote, Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. 1 Peter 2.18 says that they are to be subject with all respect, a genuine internal attitude. I, I'm, not just, I'm not just showing respect. I, I genuinely am feeling it. Ephesians 6. Slaves are to obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service, which is just an external show of obedience, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart and rendering service with a good will. I genuinely want to serve the interests of the one that I serve. I genuinely want to make them successful. I genuinely want to make their life easier. I genuinely want them to be glad that I'm serving them. There's a genuineness. In the church, Hebrews 13, 7 says that the sheep are to remember your leaders and consider them. That's internal. That's in your mind. That's in your heart. There's to be massive gratitude because, once again, they're keeping watch over your souls. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders. It's the same word I mentioned in Titus 3, 1. That it means to decide to trust, to be convinced to follow. It's an internal heart attitude. Shepherds are to shepherd the flock of God. 1 Peter 5, not under compulsion, but willingly, eagerly. There's an internal attitude. Sheep to sheep, we're to clothe ourselves with humility. That is the internal attitude of not looking down on others. Husbands are not to be harsh with their wives. Colossians 3.19, that's a word that means to not hold bitterness in your heart. Wives are to be respectful, pure, gentle, quiet spirit. 1 Peter 3, that's, that's internal. 
Children are to obey their parents for this pleases the Lord. This is internal motivation. Listen, biblical submission is nothing if it's not genuine, if it's not internal, if it's not honest, if it's not sincere. Now, right now, you might be saying, I can't do that. Well, first of all, if you're not a believer in Christ, then you're not doing that, and you can't do that. You must have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes to those who repent by faith and trust the Lord Jesus to forgive them of their sins. If you're already a Christian and you're saying, I still can't do that, only by the power of the Holy Spirit in glad and worshipful response to the gospel of Christ and the work of redemption that Christ has wrought in your life, only can you do it through that power. Can I give you a little tip? If you have trouble submitting as a believer in Christ, you are not contemplating the gospel enough. You're not contemplating what Christ did because submission is produced by brokenness and the gospel is what breaks you in half. You know what kind of life is characterized by submission that is theological, that is unconditional, that's total, and that's internal? You know what we call that? We call that the triumphant Christian life. That's, that's victory, that's triumph. On the other hand, you may in fact be a believer in Christ and yet resist authority. You may argue with the idea of Christians submitting to government, of husbands submitting to Christ, of wives submitting to husbands, of the church submitting in all things to the scriptures, of submitting to your elders as those who, who will give an account. And if you're a genuine believer and you live a life that is characterized by this unbroken spirit, you will go to heaven, but the Apostle Paul tells what your reward will be. 1 Corinthians 3.15, and I believe with all of my heart that this is connected directly to how we submit. Paul says, if anyone's work is burned up, meaning it was useless, quote, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And yes, you will be perfected for all eternity, but you know what else you'll be spending all eternity doing? Submitting. So you might as well start now and receive a reward for it because all believers in Christ will submit to Christ for all eternity. I won't deny submission can be hard. Submission can be hard. It seems that the authority placed in our lives is designed specifically by God to be the greatest irritant in our lives as well. We understand that. And if you think that, just believe it. Yes, God gave me the authority that I needed. Yes, it can be hard. It was hard for Christ. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Speaking of his coming, suffering on the cross, but praise God that Jesus submitted to his Father. and He continued, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, how hard was this submission? Luke 22 says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Have you sweat blood in your prayers to submit? Until you have, don't say it's hard. Until you have, don't say it's hard. Peter said, I will lay down my life for you. 
Jesus asked him, will you lay down your life for me? And yes, Peter denied him three times after that. But you know what the ultimate answer to Jesus' question was? Will you lay down your life for me? The ultimate answer was yes, he would. And indeed he did. First, Peter in his obedience and his devotion to the Lord throughout his ministry. And second, he would literally lay down his life for Christ in one final act of submission in his public crucifixion for the sake of Christ. He didn't want to be equal with Christ. He didn't want to be the same as him because he wasn't worthy, but rather he would be below him. So Peter's final request on this earth was that he would be crucified upside down so that he would hupotasso, place himself beneath Christ. And we can do no less. Amen? Our Father, we thank you so much for the possibility of living the triumphant Christian life. And it is, as we've seen recently, Lord, a confession-filled life, a humility-filled life, a gratitude-filled life, a church-filled life, and perhaps more than all the others. It is a submission-filled life. And so, Lord God, it is our prayer, it is our hope that we would be humble before you. We have nothing to offer you. We have nothing to be proud of whatsoever. We have nothing that brings merits to our own soul Our resume is a blank sheet of paper. And then if we turn it over, it's just a list of sin after sin after sin. So we bring you nothing of value. But you bring all the value. You bring all that is worthy. And you bring it to us. And so we would join the psalmist in saying, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory. That would be our attitude. Lord, I pray for a man or a woman here, a boy or a girl here who has not submitted to Christ, who has not bent the knee to admit that they are sinners in need of forgiveness. I pray that this would be the day that they would submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we're promised that if we will humble ourselves before the Lord, he will exalt us at the proper time. And I pray for us as believers in Christ in every realm in which we are to submit, in which we are to be humble, in which we are to have the gentle and the quiet spirits that you would help us, Lord, to be like the Lord Jesus Christ, who though he is innocent, uttered not a word on his own, def- on, on his own behalf, in his own defense, when he was being tried as the only fully innocent man ever to live. And so, Lord, we ask you to help us to follow in the footsteps of Christ to trust you that ungodly leadership, ungodly authority will be dealt with, and that is not our domain. That is not our responsibility. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But we are called to obey. And I pray we would do that in the realm of the world, in the realm of the church, and in the realm of our homes, all so that we might accurately reflect the gospel in our lives. And it is for Christ's sake and in his name we pray. Amen.